welcome to my Grand Slam Journey podcast, where I, together with my guests, discuss various topics related to finding purpose, maximizing our potential, competitive sports, life after sports, and transitioning from one chapter of our lives to the next. My today's guest needs little to no introduction, especially if you are a fan of tennis. Wayne Ferreira is a former ATP Tour professional tennis player from Johannesburg, South Africa. Wayne had an outstanding tennis career. He won 15 top-level singles titles and 11 doubles titles. His career high rankings were world number six in singles and world number nine in doubles. Wayne is the third tennis player with 56 consecutive Grand Slam appearances in men's tennis. What a consistency. Wayne and I met at a prem tournament at the Glen Eagles Country Club in Plano, Texas. I believe that was in 2008 or 9. For context, this podcast was recorded on Tuesday, January 19th, California time, and January 20th, Melbourne, Australia time. During this podcast, Wayne and I talk about his upbringing and his route to tennis. We discuss some of his wins and achievements and the diverse styles of tennis players he competed against. We also discuss his longevity and being able to compete at the topmost level for 16 years and play against the best tennis players of three different eras, starting from Bjorn Borg, Ivan Lendl, John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors, then competed against top players such as Ed Berg, Becker, Sampras, Agassi, Cenk, Ivanishevich, and at the end of his career, having an opportunity to play against Federer and his era of younger uprising generation at that time. Wayne achieved the semifinals of the Austrian Open twice, and we also discussed about his three Olympic appearances. We talk about Wayne's transition from professional tennis to becoming a father and focusing on family life, his entrepreneurial journey, and then another transition to becoming an ATP coach. Wayne is currently coaching Francis TFO, who is currently ranked number 62 in the world. What stands out to me from this conversation is Wayne's talent, commitment to work hard, and his ability to easily transition between different journeys and careers of his life. It is almost as the life is unfolding itself for him, and he moves forward through different stages. He makes it seem very graceful and almost effortless. I appreciate Wayne's straightforwardness, transparency, and all he shared about his life journey with me so openly. I love how grounded Wayne seems to be and his humble, open, and warm personality. Some of my favorite quotes from this podcast on never giving up. Ultimately, you want to succeed at the end, and I still had the ability to focus and concentrate and fight hard enough for what is it I wanted, even though it may have taken me much longer than I would have liked it to. I still wanted to try to succeed. On losing. Sometimes losing when you're younger is better than winning because you learn how to compete and you learn how to learn to win. On mental toughness, self-confidence, and perseverance, being able to fight back and come back to win matches despite being behind. In my senior career, 
I often came from behind to win because of my belief and the will to win. I realized that if I just hang in there, the opportunity of my opponent getting worse and helping me out was a lot. And I won a lot of matches that way. And it became almost a test for me. How many times can I win when being down? It is a lot more fun to win matches when you are down, deep down. On trust and teamwork. Trust is key in creating teamwork. You can only have success when everybody works together as a team. On life, there's always good and bad in everything that you do. And the last one I'm paraphrasing. There are challenges in everything that we do. And that is also what makes life interesting. We try to get a result and you try to win. And being a tennis player and wanting to win and wanting and trying to have a success can be a good and a bad thing. You may not always make it, but ultimately you will be better off for trying and learning. Commit, work hard and persevere through challenges and obstacles and you will have a chance of making it. And now I bring you Wayne Ferreira. Enjoy the listen. Hi, Wayne. Hello, how are you? I am good. How are you doing? Doing fine. How's everything going? The weather here has been awesome. It seems like spring is coming. So I've been really enjoying the warmth and working outside in this nice and warm weather. How is everything in Melbourne? Yeah, good, good. I managed to get out yesterday for the first day for practice. Um, it's weather's nice. We're, you know, we're going through this two-week quarantine and we get five hours of tennis a day, which kind of breaks it up a bit, but it's still a long, a long time to sit in the room. Yeah, I bet. So do you have to be in the room the whole time? Oh, yeah. Is it the five hours you can only hang out at the tennis courts? Yep, it's very, 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 very strict. I've read some of the articles about unfairness that some tennis players are protesting. How is the mood there? It's unfortunate for a couple of them that there were three or four aeroplanes that had some positive cases on it. And because of the close contacts, they had to quarantine almost everybody on the plane. So there's a lot of people and they're having a hard quarantine, which means they can't get out to go practice at all. And I feel sorry for them. I mean, it's unfortunate that they were the ones who got kind of screwed in a way, but you have to expect these kinds of things. It is what it is. We're lucky to be down here and we're lucky to be able to play. Those ones that are quarantined are going to have a hard time because they can't practice. So it's going to be tough for them to come straight out of quarantine. But If you look at the big picture, they shouldn't be, and they're lucky to be here. Yes, it's a hard thing in everything that 2020 and 2021, I think, especially for yeah. the professional athletes and coaches, the sport and traveling and playing tournaments, it's all uh, you guys do. So uh, when something like COVID comes and throws the whole world upside down, everything just goes bananas in your lives. They should have expected it to a certain degree. And people have been living through this now for a year. People know what the circumstances are and they know about contact tracing. I mean, hey, you know, you, you're the one that gets screwed because you're on that plane and that sucks. But, yeah. you know, the big picture, I mean, the Australians have had a tough time these last six months. 30,000 people haven't been able to come back to the country because they haven't been allowed to answer. So, I mean, you know, they're bitching and moaning when they really shouldn't be. Yeah, I love the self-accountability and awareness that you were already stating here. Well, if I had been in the hard quarantine for two weeks, it would suck. But I would also say I'm not, it's the chance I took coming down here. Yes. You know, all Australians that come down during the pandemic that have come down to Australia, that have lived out the country and come down here, have had to do two-week hard quarantining where they haven't been able to leave their hotel room for two weeks. Wow. That is very strict. Yeah, it's very, very strict. So that's why 
we can't really complain because we get to go out for five hours a day and practice. All Australians in the last five months when they've come back have spent two weeks in a hotel. Wow. I didn't know that. And it, it seems like the capacity also was very limited or they were hoping to increase it to what, 50 to 75 percent audience. But is it still set right now at 25? I know they had very strict rules. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think they have a set amount. They've sold tickets really well. And I don't know what the number is. But once you get into the country and you quarantine for the two weeks and the two weeks is up, you're free to do whatever you want. I mean, there's no mask. Everything's open. So, I mean, in, in essence, they could. They have football matches, Aussie rule football. They have like 30,000 people watching, sitting next to other rugby matches and that. So, I mean, they fine to do it. So, I, I don't understand why they don't have it at 100%. They could if they wanted to. Yeah, especially with the quarantine, given that everybody had to stay there. Yeah. So, they don't even have to wear masks after that. Uh-uh. No. That's awesome. Yeah, I know. It's great. I look forward to that world, hopefully one day and hopefully in 2021. It may never happen. It won't happen this year, I don't think. Maybe next year. Yeah. Well, I'll keep my hopes up. Don't ruin my optimism. I'm hoping for 2021. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I want. Great. I have two or three pages of notes here. So many things I want to talk to you about, but I figured we'll just keep it fun and hopefully enjoyable for both. So we'll see where the route takes us. Okay. Fantastic. So my first question, how is it you grew up in South Africa? How was your upbringing? It was great. I had an amazing time. I mean, it's a beautiful country. It's a very high standard of living. I mean, it was an interesting time for me too, because I grew up at the end of apartheid, which was obviously something very interesting for our country over the years. And I was part of that whole growth as a kid growing up through it and the transition of power changing when Mandela came into power. Uh, and then obviously the changes through that. So I actually was born in a very interesting time in the country. There was a lot of changes, a lot of things going on. But I mean, I had a great upbringing. I, I lived in a really nice area. Our schooling was very, very good. We were able to get out, play a lot of sports. We're a very sport-loving country. So we ended up doing a lot of different sports as a kid. The weather was amazing. I always say that I think that the weather in Johannesburg is probably one of the best in the world. It's so nice through the year. So, I mean, as a child, I mean, I had probably one of the best environments uh, to grow up into with a lot of different variants uh, that I went through as a kid. Elevating South Africa at my travel list. I have a list of countries, but maybe I need to prioritize it better. You should. Now, it's a it's a beautiful country. There's a lot to do, a lot to see. I mean, we have mountains, ocean. You know, I don't live there and haven't for a while, but I always get a, a real thrill going back. It's one of the most beautiful places I, I've ever been to. And it's definitely something that people should go and see. Yeah. Is your family still there or where do they live? I have a sister who lives in Johannesburg still and I have a brother who lives in Utah, a little bit all over. So how often do you meet as a family and where do you meet? Do you alternate countries and places? No, I haven't been back to South Africa for a couple of years. My parents passed away a few years ago. So since then, I haven't really made the time to go. It had always been a little bit of a difficult time traveling all that way with young kids that I had who have now grown up, but kids and doing work and everything. My parents would come sometimes to see us and I would go sometimes to see them. Uh, as my brother was in Utah, they would come more often so that they could see both him and I at the same time. So I haven't really gone back in the last couple of years, but sort of want to go back if I have the chance. As soon as I have a little bit of a break somewhere, I'm going to try to go back down there. And you mentioned sister and brother. Are you the oldest, youngest? Yeah, I'm the youngest. I have a four years older brother and a two year older sister. Did they play sports with you? Did you all play sports together? 
My brother played tennis. Uh, he went to college in the U.S. on a tennis scholarship in Weber State in, in Ogden, Utah. And he actually stayed in Utah. He worked various things. He has a tennis club. And at the moment, he's also the men's tennis coach of the of Weber State uh, University tennis team. My sister, on the other hand, she was into horse riding, so she never played tennis. She went a different route, so, but she's not doing that anymore. So yeah, so he, my brother and I were the, the tennis people in the family. And so why tennis? You mentioned you played a lot of sports. How did tennis come around and what captured your attention to that sport? It was difficult to say, really. I mean, I played a lot of sports at school. We had a lot of cricket and soccer. I did a lot of running. I played squash, badminton, tennis. So I did a lot of various sports. But I think tennis kind of got me. My dad, we, we remember at a club and we would go hang out sort of Saturday afternoons and Sunday mornings and play club league and social and stuff with my dad. And I just enjoyed the tennis. I think I liked it a lot more because it was individualized could count on myself more that soccer and rugby and cricket and all those were more of a team sport and I like to be more of an individual sport and I just like tennis it was fun I ran around a lot it was a lot of exercise I spent a lot of time at the club so it was kind of the one that grabbed me more than the others got it and how did it then evolve to this is the sport and I now have to pay more attention because I'm doing great you were the number one juniors and doubles number six in singles How did you make the decision, I'm going to concentrate on tennis now and only, and that's going to be my sport? There were various things that happened along the way, but when I went from middle school to high school, soccer didn't exist. You had to play rugby, and I didn't want to play rugby, so that was the end of soccer. Cricket, I had a teacher I didn't really like, and I lost interest in cricket. Badminton, I only did in middle school. I couldn't do it in high school. So there were a lot of sports that actually just went away from me. And tennis, I enjoyed it. It was one of the ones I did at school and outside of school. And I only really took tennis seriously. I did all these different sports through school, whatever the season was at school. And so I decided when I was about 13 years old to start focusing on tennis. So that was about the only time that I gave up a lot of other sports and focused on tennis. So I feel like it was the right thing. I got to do a lot of other sports and enjoy myself. And then at 13, I decided to focus my attentions onto tennis. And then I started practicing a bit more playing every day. Up until 13, I only used to play maybe two or three hours a week. So it was kind of a transition into it. At 13, I started practicing more, training more, and putting more of an effort into it. And I obviously improved a lot, a lot quicker. Yeah. So it seems how you described that it sounded to me more of an elimination process. Some of the other sports fell in part or you lost interest. And then tennis seemed a natural path that you intensified your focus and started naturally putting more energy into. More or less. And I could have focused on other things if I'd liked it, but they fell away also because I lost interest in them in a bit too. And tennis grabbed me a little bit more than the rest of them. So yeah, it's kind of just worked its way like that. But I enjoyed tennis a lot. I played it a lot. I had fun with it. I had a lot of nice friends that I played with. So it, it was a sport that I had got the most fun from a social aspect and a fun aspect out of it too. So, and I liked that a lot as a kid. Obviously, it turned out to be a pretty good choice. I just liked the sport of what it was, chasing around a ball and hitting it and running. And I also think it was good that I didn't really focus as much as some do kids do today. Uh, otherwise, I might have got a burnout. So by the time I was 13 and started focusing on it, I had a lot of energy to put into it, which was good. Yes. Some kids start now very early at six, seven, running four or five hours a day. Yep. Yeah, it changes the perspective. Yeah, they get serious burnout by the time they're 13 rather than being excited like I was. 
Yes. One of my uh, best friends, actually, her mom did a PhD uh, recently, and she did a study in the development related to kids and how do you lead kids to sport. And um, I hope to actually have my friend or, or her mom on the podcast. But the outcome of the study seemed um, that the best thing while kids are developing is actually do exactly what you did, expose them to many different sports, create this overall body strength, agility, uh, practice different skill set. And really, once they start maturing at 13, 14, 15, then start choosing that one sport and intensifying the focus on it. That seems to lead to less injuries because of that good base of having the different sport backgrounds and muscle development from different movements. That sounds, your path was natural and led you that way. And uh, as you mentioned, having the friends and probably your brother playing together helped you to choose that sport. Was there any influence from your parents or coaches or was it your natural selection? We were a sport-loving country and we do a lot of different sports. And at that time, a lot of people would go to the club. It was a very social tennis club and we would go hang out. And my dad would play a little bit in the afternoon and then he would go sit in the bar and hang out with his friends. And then we would go Sunday morning and play leagues and the kids would just tag along and we would run out on the court and play and hit on the wall and hang out. And it happens a lot in different countries where you have that club base uh, where people just go and hang out. And it, it was a social thing and, and a fun thing. And um, that was what got me to play tennis most of the time, um, just hanging out with my friends and playing. That sounds like a lot of fun and joy is playing and competing and enjoying life. Yeah. At what point did you realize, wow, I'm getting really good? I may be doing this professionally. It's an interesting question. I don't know, to be honest, but it, it, there were a lot of things that culminated to get a bunch of us to come to a decision. When I was 16 years old, there were a few of us that were doing quite well. They were a couple of years older than me. And back at the time when you finished high school, there was mandatory military service. And there were three boys who were a year and two years older than me. They were actually very good juniors as well. And they wanted to turn professional and they didn't want to go to college in the U.S. and they didn't want to waste too much time. So they decided to go into the military. And I don't know what made me do it or what the reasons were. I love tennis and wanted to put a little bit more of a commitment in. So I went, I gave up my last two years of high school and went into the Air Force to do my mandatory military service. Because I wanted to get it over with. I didn't want to have to waste two years of finishing high school and then going to the military for two years and waste two years before I went out to go and play. So I did something unusual, went to the Air Force when I was 16, did my two years. And by the time my friends finished high school, I had finished my military service and was able to turn pro and go play after that. Wow, that's impressive. How was that? How did you combine Air Force training and tennis training, or if that's even possible to combine together? Well, it was interesting because at that particular time, I think the reason why I did it is because all the good tennis players in South Africa decided to go into the military at the same time. We had a few players who were older that had been in college in the US that were actually doing quite well. They came back. We had the kids who were finishing high school. There were three of us that were 16 years old, my age. There were about 15, 16 of us that all went into the military at the same time. And that was probably the reason why I did it is because we would be able to go every afternoon and we would have to do our services in the morning and our work and whatever we needed to do. And then in the afternoon, we would all meet at about four o'clock and we would go have an academy. And the 16 of us would go and practice for, say, two or two and a half hours. 
and then go back to our bunks or back to where we were living and do finish our services. So there were a lot of us. There were 16 of us. We went and played every single day and we had an academy and it, it ended up working out perfectly well for a bunch of us because funnily enough, at one stage, South Africa had 11 guys ranked in the top 100 in the world in doubles and uh, nine of them came from those 16 that were in the military together. So it was a, an, an interesting time. Wow, yeah. It sounds like you created your own manual how to create a perfect personal tennis players. Combine the Air Force training with tennis fun in the afternoon. Well, it was a mandatory service for us, but we weren't really as involved as you would be if you were in the military. And we were doing our time because we had to do it. We weren't permanent force. It wasn't a job as it is for most of them. So I don't know if you do it as a full-time job, if you would have the time to be able to do what we did. But it worked out well for us. And we got a lot of benefit out of it for a lot of us. Fantastic. And so uh, after that, was in 1989, you decided you're going to turn pro and play tennis personally full-time and compete at the ATP. Was there a specific win or uh, anything else that made you declare, I'm doing this professionally? Was there anything else behind that decision, a specific success? I think making the decision to go into the military at 16 made that decision for me because you know, obviously I didn't finish high school. So the education part was taking a step back. I hadn't really done anything by the time I was 16. I just felt like there was an ability for me to, and I loved the tennis and I just wanted to play. And maybe when when you look back at it, it was a crazy, stupid thing to do. But uh, at the time, my, my parents were okay with it because they they knew how much I loved tennis and they knew how much I hated school. So they were okay with it. And maybe it was a really stupid decision, but it worked out okay for me. That's great. And so then you turn pro and you have great success. One of the things that stood out to me is your consistency. You're the third after Federer and Lopez in the most amount of consecutive Grand Slam tournament appearances in men's tennis. By the time you got there, there's a whole bunch of things happening. I want to ask you to share a little bit about your top highlights of your personal career. How do you look at it now? There's a lot of wins, but which ones perhaps stand out the most and you remember and value the most? It's a tough question to answer because there were so many amazing things that came out of my career as a tennis player, playing for 16 years, being able to compete at the highest level, Made semifinals at the Australian Open twice, won a couple Master Series, won 15 tournaments, uh, made top 10 singles and doubles. One thing that was amazing for me is my longevity in tennis put me through three different eras of tennis. When I was younger, I had uh, the amazing opportunity to play uh, Bjorn Borg, John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors, Ivan Lendl. And then I moved into the new generation. I played Edberg, Becker, and then Sampras. Agassi, old Chang, Ivanisevic, all those guys through that generation. And then towards the end of my career, I played Federer. So I spanned a long span of, of a career. And if I put a list down of all of the, the greatest tennis players that have ever played, I was lucky to be able to play against pretty much every single one of them. Yeah. I missed out on obviously Rafa. Rafa was playing when I was still playing, but I didn't get the opportunity to play him. But other than that, I played pretty much everybody that played the game, all the greats that played the game, starting from the Borg era all the way through to Roger. So that to me was a, a wonderful achievement and very lucky for me to be able to have done that. Yeah, I agree. That is fantastic. And uh, you playing for so long and uh, having different generations. Can I cherry pick a few that you mentioned? Yeah. 
One of the wins you had here in Sydney, Australia, against Ivan rank number four at that point. Ivan grew up in a tennis academy I grew up in. I heard stories when I started playing about Ivan and his mom and his upbringing. Can you share anything on that? Yeah, that was an amazing achievement. And my idol was Borg. So playing Borg was the greatest and then playing McEnroe. But you looked at that rivalry that they all had mm. through the years as a kid growing up. And Lendl was one of those machines that you just want to spend the time out on the court and you wanted to play against. And I had this weird idea. Unfortunately, it was indoors, which made it come a little bit quicker. But I had this idea that I, when I played him, that I wanted to just outlast him from the baseline. I just wanted to stay there and see how long I could outlast him and play against him. And yeah, he was four in the world at the time. And His game suited me. I played really well against him. I ended up winning the match, which was an amazing achievement. I think those were the ones that made me realize that I deserve to be out there and playing. And, you know, all the time and effort that I put out on the court, those were the, the matches that you dreamed about doing as a kid growing up. And it was very special. I actually did beat him. I beat Borg. I beat McEnroy. And not only did I play them, I beat them too. So those are achievements that were very special. Yeah. So you look at Lendl and my dad, my mom, they always gave him to me as an example, especially the calmness that he had. My problem on the court, I could get very angry and emotional. Yeah. It's like You need to be like Ivan. He just has straight face. You can't see emotions. Then you also beat Pete Sampras or Goran Ivanishevich. You surf. Yeah. It's a very different game. How do you play against them? How do you set that strategy to win those matches? When I played in my era, it was a very interesting time in tennis because there was a lot of variation to the game. In the 60s, 70s, 80s, it was mostly serve and volley. Everybody served and volley. Then you started getting into the 80s and 90s where there were more baseliners. When Borg came around, he started changing that serve and volley and stayed back more. And then there became a very big mix between baseliners and serve mm -hmm. and volleyers. And It was interesting because you had to adjust. You had to learn how to adjust your game compared to who you were playing against. And I actually was more suited to playing the big serve and volleyers. I returned really well and, and I managed to get through my serve games okay, but I returned really well. So most of my better victories came against the bigger servers like the Sampras, Krajicek, Ivanisevic, Filipusis, uh, Rizetsky, those types of guys. And But yeah, those are the things you have to learn to adjust. And then the tennis, unfortunately, now towards today's tennis has gone the other way where it's become sort of one-dimensional from baseline only. So I think my error was the best in the sense of being able to have a variation of styles of tennis. And, and it was interesting to watch the different people playing different ways. But I was definitely more suited to beat the servant volleys. So I'm switching now. I know Leighton, that has very consistent baseline game. And I also have a note there that you were one of the players who have positive records against Roger Federer. So what were your strategies for those games? The one time I beat Roger, he was ranked five in the world. He hadn't quite taken over the domination of the game yet. He was doing well and he was good. But his game grew a lot when he came out. He was a little bit younger and that. And he had a little bit of a weakness in the backhand side, which I was able to exploit when I played against him. And then he developed a better backhand as time went on. I didn't really play him, in my opinion, when he was dominating the game like he has over sort of the last 10 years. But I still played him and still had a winning record against him. And sometimes they always say there's no comment column to a victory. So I'll take him. I'll keep him, keep him next to me and say that I had a winning record. But I do say it would have been fun to have played him when he was in that stage where he was completely dominating. That would have been a fun time to play against him. Yeah. 
Sounds great. Anything as you look at your career, you would want to call out or highlight? The one thing for me, which I never realized at the time of how important it was for me, was winning a medal at the Olympics in Barcelona in 92. South Africa had gone through quite an mm. interesting time with apartheid. Over those years, we had been banned from Davis Cup 1971. We were banned from the Olympic Games. And South Africa was allowed back into the Olympics in 1992 for the first time in 32 years that we'd been banned from the Olympics. And I ended up winning a silver medal in doubles with my partner, Pity Norville, was the first medal that South Africa had won for 32 years. So that in itself was a big, important thing and wonderful for me and for my country. Wow. Um, so also the fact of winning a medal is very, very special. And I never realized at the time how important it was. And obviously, I'm grateful that I got the opportunity to go to the Olympics. I went three times and also had a chance to win a medal, which was something very memorable. I also introduced back into Davis Cup in 1971. We were kicked out. We got back in 89. I've played Davis Cup for South Africa back again. So there were a lot of things that I did that were first in the country that we'd been out from a long time. So there were some very special memories. Yes, I've noticed the Olympics here, but I haven't realized it was the first time after 32 years of Ben. I'm sure that must have been huge for you and the whole country to celebrate. And then you also competed again in uh, 1996, right? Yep, and 2000. Yeah, I went to Atlanta 96 and Sydney 2000. Yeah. Very special times. The Olympics actually is an amazing to be part of. Yes, I've heard those are really fun when your whole country bonds together from all different sports and you're all cheering for each other no matter yeah. what the sport is. Yeah, definitely. I'm really glad the tennis got put into the Olympics. I'm glad I had the opportunity to go and be a part of it. And it's certainly, I mean, most sports around the world, you know, they spend their whole career wanting to go to the Olympics and you can understand why. It's the pinnacle of sport in some ways. And it's amazing to be part of walking around, seeing all these different athletes, all these different sizes and shapes coming from all these different countries. It's, it's something that's really, truly amazing, amazing uh, to be part of. Yeah, that's great. I would like to ask about the consistencies. What speaks to me is the longevity that you've been able to play, the variety of different players and games, as you mentioned, to be able to change your strategy and style. And the consistency to me, I believe it's key, even from my career and, and perspective. I feel when I was able to get into consistent level of my game that's when I started growing and performing better do you have any tips or tricks how to navigate that how were you able to achieve those consistent results that's a difficult one to answer because I was pretty much just doing it as I was doing it and when I look back at it I don't think there was anything specific that stood out I mean I was naturally flexible and naturally athletic to a certain degree my body structure held up really well. I have big, strong legs, which was able to carry me a lot. But one thing I did do was I was one of the first players that traveled with a massage therapist, physio, and I took a lot of care. I did a lot of exercise, a lot of running, mm. but I did a lot of physio work and, and a lot of treatment to keep my body in the shape that it needed to be on the recovery and that. And today, it's, it's what everyone does. Everyone has a physio. It's very professional. And that's why you can see that there's players that are staying a lot longer in the game that take much better care of themselves physically. And But when my time, it wasn't such a big deal. Nobody really did that. I was one of the first to do that. 
and it made me last much longer. It made me have less injuries. It made me have a longer career. And I think having that professionalism part of doing the training in the right way, having the recovery done in the right way allows you to be able to stay healthier and, and have a longer career. Yeah, recovery is definitely important. And as I grow older, I realized the value of rest and recovery or even active recovery. Yeah. I'm not professional anymore. Even just normal things is working around my pains. I need to be more mindful around my body than I'd say 10 years ago, the ways you were able to push through and didn't even notice yeah. 10 years ago are definitely different. How did you get the idea? As you mentioned, this wasn't something typical. How did you recognize recovery and regeneration is where I need to double down to be able to sustain the pace and really get the maximum out of my body? It actually worked out in a very interesting way is that I was playing tennis and I had a coach and I wasn't really doing a lot of work. And I remember I played against Michael Chang in the US Open and I got to the fourth round and I was doing exceptionally well and I was up two sets to one and I started getting tired and running out of energy and actually in the beginning of the fifth set i pulled a hamstring because my body had just got past a level that it had never really felt before i pushed myself so much further than i had done before and i pulled a hamstring and realized after that match that i wasn't in good enough shape that there was a lot of work that i needed to do i couldn't just work on my ability and my talent i had to really put in the effort to train really really hard so i hired a fitness trainer to start working with me and the fitness trainer also was a massage therapist. I hired him for fitness, but while we were doing the fitness, he started doing massage on me too to do recovery. And I just got used to doing the two. And I got lucky, to be honest, that he was a massage therapist too. But it's made me realize that work. And then I actually started really getting into working out. I enjoyed it. And it became a part of my daily routine. And even when I stopped working with him, I made sure that the next person I hired was a fitness and a physio at the same time. So it was a little bit of luck that I ended up getting the massage therapist, but also realizing that I needed to work harder worked out well for me. Yeah, good job. And two in one is always great. I do think great fitness trainers, if they combine the strength with the massage therapy, they know how the body moves. So when you find a great combination of a person like that, they can be very valuable and beneficial. So good job on finding the right person. They are yeah. back in our time. We weren't making as much money as, as the guys do today, so you didn't really want to have two specific people doing it. So I mean, it worked out well. Today, you have guys traveling with someone who does both, but then you also get guys traveling with one who's a massage therapist and one who's a trainer. So it's become part of the game today. Yes, they have more funds to be able to do it, so it's it's easier to do. But it is an important part of the game: the strength and conditioning and the and the recovery. Yeah, I agree. It's. Uh... I would say at this point, equally important as your tennis game, because if you're trying to keep your body together and yep. I remember when I was a kid, I did a lot of conditioning back in the day, footwork. It's been always the one thing I was yelled at, especially if you're taller and, and bigger, finding the little steps and the precision of a footwork and staying balanced and healthy, especially also my back. For tall players, the rotation has been always yeah, a yeah. fun thing, trying to keep my back together. So, Yeah, no question. Unfortunately, there's a lot more around tennis than just hitting a tennis ball. Yes. Or fortunately, I think that's why it's such a fun game because you require so many different skills. Yeah. True. So you don't get tired of doing just one. You need that's flexibility, true. strength, speed, agility. 
so many different exercises and things you can do to improve your body and movement holistically that you, you never get bored. Uh, correct. Yeah, 100% on that one, yes. So your career has been a great success. 15 ATP singles, 11 doubles titles, number six in the world. And then at 34, 2005, you decided to retire. What made you make that decision? I actually retired in 2004, end of 2004. And the reason being is that I had made a promise to my wife that when we had the birth of our second child, which was actually in May, he was born in May of 2004, that I would retire. And when he was born, I decided to play the rest of the year to play a couple more Grand Slams to keep my run going. But the decision was I was starting to get a little bit tired. I was starting to get a few injuries and my shoulder was starting to hurt me. And I had a five-year-old son at that stage that I hadn't really been around while I was playing as much. And I decided that once I had the second child, I was going to retire and spend more time with the family. How was that decision at that point? It seems like I promised uh, I'm getting injured and I'm going to be consistent, deliver on my promise. But how was the adjustment to what I call the normal civilian life after that? Everything you've done for so many years now goes away from your life. Other than family, what were you focusing on? How was that transition? Well, it was tough. I mean, obviously, I went from traveling around to not traveling at all. But uh, I personally, to, to today, don't have any regrets in retiring. I, I think I picked the right time. It was perfect for me. I'd done enough. I was tired. Uh, I had something else to change my mind from tennis with my son being born. And I spent the next two years taking care of him, spending time with him and my, and my five-year-old and being a dad and doing stuff with him. But I do have to say that after about two years, it took me well, less than that, but I, I hung out for about two years. I started to get really bored of being at home and not doing everything. When you travel around the world and you're competing at a high level and you're, you're active all the time, and then you're not really doing anything like that, it becomes quite difficult. And it took me about two years before I started something else. But for long period of time there, I was you know, anxious and wanting to do something. And so after two years, I decided to do something different and do another job. So it took a while, but it was a good time for me. I spent a lot of valuable time with my younger son, you know, the one that was born and the five-year-old. So it was a time that I was happy that I had with him. Yeah. You mentioned in about two years, do something else. Was it the company you started? Or I know you also played the senior series tour still. Yeah, I would do a bit of the tennis, the senior stuff, bits and pieces here and there, uh, just to have some exercise and do some stuff. But no, I actually started Ecola Blue Water Company beginning of 2007. So that's about two, two and a bit years after I retired, I started the company and got into working. And, that, and it was great. It was a different experience. I wanted to see if I was able to transition from tennis into business, into corporate to a certain degree, and see if I was able to be, have some success doing that. And also do something different. I could have stayed in tennis, but I felt like I wanted to take a break from it. I wanted to do something else. I wanted to see if I enjoyed different parts of different things. So I started the company and ran that for 12 years. And it was fun. It was interesting to a certain degree. I learned a lot. I got back into that corporate world dealing with different things. It was a good learning experience. I had a lot of fun with it, but it was tough. It was completely different, different than playing tennis, I'll have to say. Yeah. Why Ecolo Blue? How did you get the idea? And maybe explain for people who may listen, what are the products that you sell? Yeah, I'd come across the technology. Basically, what it was, was a machine that made water out of the humidity in the air. It's sort of dehumidification process. And we built these machines that 
you could have your house, kind of like the five-gallon jug machines that you see in office buildings. And basically what the machine did was is it would suck the air, suck the humidity out of the air and produce drinking water. And uh, we competed with those five-gallon jug companies in selling the machines. The concept for me was amazing. It was an environmental product. It had great benefits in regards to the lack of water that we face in the world today. We built a small machine that you could use in an office. We built up to big ones that would make up to 10,000 liters of water a day. And the idea was to try to get them into countries that were lacking in water. And it's almost, in a sense, free water in the sense that it's made for you. You don't have to go look for it. A lot of countries are struggling to find water in the ground or the rainwater. And the water is becoming much harder to find around the world. And this particular machine made very, very pure drinking water out of the humidity in the air. And it's an infinite surplus of water. So the concept, I loved it. I thought it was amazing, especially from an environmental standpoint, and I really believed in it. And it, it was fun. We did some good projects. We worked with some interesting people. We got the machines out there in different places. It certainly was a very interesting business to be part of. Yeah, I love the idea. And I agree everything you said in regards to sustainability, or especially there are so many countries suffering that water is not accessible. How did you think to that idea? Former professional tennis player on break for a couple of years. I'm going to do something sustainable. And a great thing is to create water for people who don't have it out of air. I came across the technology actually about four or five years before I retired from tennis. Somebody had mentioned it to me and I'd found it very intriguing and interesting. And the problem that the machine had was being able to produce water at a low cost. It was a little bit too expensive from an energy standpoint as well as the machines were having a hard time being able to produce water in lower humidity climates. And I just thought it would be an interesting task to see if we were able to design a machine that could work much cheaper. The machines were much cheaper than bottled water, and it was almost impossible to be at the price of tap or faucet water. But I wanted to see how cheap we could make the, the cost of water, how efficient we could build a machine, how light we could make them, how efficient. It was an interesting thing for me, but the technology really came to me, and I just wanted to see if I could better it and make it efficient and available for the masses. I didn't design it. I didn't come up with the idea. I just tried to improve it. Yeah. I still remember the first time you told me about it, and I thought it's an excellent idea, even from the perspective, as you mentioned, that you're not buying bottles of water, so there is no plastic waste. In many ways, very sustainable, and there's so many places that do not have good drinking water, even here in the United States, first world country. Going back to tennis and entrepreneurial mindset, what do you find are the commonalities as you now look back, being a professional tennis player that helped you excel in your entrepreneurial journey? How did those skills translate over to being an entrepreneur? Um, the work ethic was really important and you're able to put in the time and the energy to focus on a project. I can work hard at it. I can fight through it. There were a lot of benefits in regards to the tennis coming into it, um, regards to that work and being able to do all of that. The one thing that I found the most difficult for me transitioning from tennis to business was when you play a tennis match, you go out that day, you have a result at the end of the day, that tournament that week, you have a result of that tournament at the end of that week. And you know what the outcome is going to be and you move on to the next week. Mm. You start again. You have an outcome for your match. You have an outcome for that week. What I found the most difficult in business was the time it took to do everything. 
And that was the one thing where I became very anxious in trying to push results, mm. dealing with people. And I realized over time that it didn't work that way, is that things get drawn out really long. I mean, projects take forever. You know, you, you go into a project to want to do something and you push, you push, you push, you push. And before you know it, you're pushing, you're still pushing two years later. Yes. And that was the difficult part for me was not having that gratification or that result. So that was probably the biggest negative that I got from going from tennis to business was not having a lot of results, having to wait forever to get something done. And that was the tough part. But other than that, I think working and being able to work and enjoying the work learning new things, traveling different places. And there was a lot of good out of it too. So like anything, there's always good and bad in everything that you do. Yes. And thank you for stating that. You described some of the challenges I have been facing in the corporate America for the past 10 years. I know you had some government contracts as well. So that can probably be a completely different challenge working with government on some of those larger deals and That probably takes even a different amount going through that bureaucracy in the process. Of course. And I think it's like that in most business, everything takes a long time. You have to go through different people, especially in, in government contracts, going up the ranks, getting to the right person, getting the result, people doing it for whatever reasons they're doing it. And then sometimes you get your government contract and it's put through. And then all of a sudden there's a change in position that you were talking to and then you have to go back and start all over again so there's a lot of challenges i mean there's a lot of challenges again as i said in everything that you do there's the the good and the bad and the challenges that you have to work through and fight through and that's what also makes it interesting because you try to get a result and you try to win and being a tennis player and wanting to win and trying to have success can be a good and a bad thing you know, ultimately you want the success in the end and I still had the ability to focus and concentrate and fight hard enough for what it is that I wanted, even though it took much longer than I would have liked it. I still wanted to try to succeed. Yeah. I'm going to test the hypothesis on you now. Are you ready? I hope so. <laughs> yeah. so. One of the things that gets thrown around, I feel we tennis players or the individual sport players get a bad rep for this, is that you're an individual player. You're selfish and self-centered. You don't know how to do teamwork. That's typically the first thing that people, when they start comparing the individual sport athletes to the team athletes. Have you had that happen to you? Would you agree, disagree with it? How would you rate yourself on the team player scale as a former personal tennis player? I can definitely see what they're saying. When I was a kid growing up, the reason why I took tennis is because I used to get so annoyed playing a soccer game and <laughs> feel like I'm doing everything and the best player out there and doing everything that I needed to do and having people that I thought were idiots working with me and, and, uh, <laughs> and, and we end up losing. And that's why I took tennis because I could be in control of my own destiny. So from that aspect, I can see yes, but I also think it is a personality trait. I think people have different mm -hmm. personalities. I think you can have team players who are selfish and only think about themselves. But I do think that people who do individual sports get used to doing everything on themselves, relying on themselves and the outcome being about themselves. So mm. I can see it, uh, what they're saying, and I can agree to it. But I also do think that it does vary from person to person and their personality. I didn't have a problem working. I had a business partner that I worked with, didn't have a problem working with him. I didn't have a problem working with the people that were in the company working with me. But I can definitely see um, what they're saying because I used to get annoyed when they weren't doing what I wanted them to do. So I get it. I can say yes, I can agree with that to a certain degree. 
Mm. Maybe we'll touch base on it later when we get to your coaching. What stood out to me now with your answer is the control. I think given how we grew up and that everything on the tennis court depends on our own skills and is in our control, the outcome of the match. I think the control and being able to orchestrate it is probably something that we lean on to as our strength. But with the coaching and the team, I think that could be different as well. Let's come back to that. So you have your company, your entrepreneur, and at the same time you started coaching. When did you open your academy in San Francisco? I started that about 2012. My oldest son had started playing tennis and the Bay Area is, uh, is obviously, you know, living there that it's difficult to get around everywhere. And most of the better academies were in the South Bay and I was living in the East Bay and it was about an hour and a half to get there and to get back. And there wasn't really a lot around the Berkeley area for him. So I decided to set up this academy for him and a couple of his friends so that they have somewhere to go and play. We started this academy with Rosie Barrys, who's the, the tennis director of the Claremont Hotel. It was great. It ended up being a lot bigger than we wanted to be. We wanted to keep it very small and have eight to 10 kids that we were going to help. And in the end, we ended up having 30, 40 kids. So it ended up growing into something really, really nice. But it was really ideally set up for my son to be able to have some other kids to play with in the area. I remember when you and I met, when was that, May 2008 or nine? Yeah. We talked something about coaching. And I know you at the time... You mentioned that wasn't something that you were that passionate about. It seems like the passion arose in you and how did helping and working with your sons and getting them into that sport, how did that awaken your passion for coaching or was there something else that naturally evolved where you do coaching now full time? I think when we were talking about that back in the time, I was thinking more about coaching on the tour and traveling. And I didn't really want to leave my family. My kids were young. I didn't want to leave them and go on the road and spend time away from them and not be there for them. When I thought about coaching, when I retired, my idea of coaching would be to travel on the tour. But when I started the academy, it was great because I spent a lot of time with my kids and I spent every afternoon with them, hanging out with them, you know, being with them and I could stay at home all the time. So I enjoyed that part of it. It was fantastic because I was helping other kids at the same time. It's a different type of coaching than ideally what I thought I would end up doing. And I enjoyed it. I had a great time with it. It was a lot of fun. And then like a typical uh, <laughs> being around tennis, we started to get some crazy parents and some <laughs> crazy... The kids were great. We never really had any issues with the kids. I only started having serious issues with overbearing parents. And that became really the negative of the academy was having to deal with parents. Mm. If all tennis academies could leave parents outside and not allow them in, they would be a lot better for it. <laughs> I do remember I've been coaching on the side just for fun, mainly in my earlier years. And uh, it's not managing the kids and coaching the kids, it's managing the parents yep. that gets the most difficult and tedious part for the coaches. Yep. So, Yep, that's for sure. I wonder why tennis parents or is it because the sport we're so close to it so we see it more than let's say soccer or i wonder if soccer or, or hockey i think i think, parents, I think crazy yeah. parents are in every sport i don't think tennis is any different from yeah. any other sport they're nuts in everything <laughs> but going back i read some of your articles you always said your parents were very kind they didn't push the sport on you and seemed like it really didn't matter if you won or lost to them they were supportive 
And I trust you've been the same support system for your sons. I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so. I think I've been pretty relaxed. My older son is the one who plays most of the tennis. My younger one actually teaches tennis. And I feel like I've been pretty relaxed with them, not really too stressed about it. But I also have a benefit in my mind compared to some of these overbearing parents is, is that I understand the game and know what's going on. Yes. <clears throat> I remember a very interesting story. My son used to swim a lot. And I always remember standing next to this lady who used to be a very good swimmer when she was younger. And she would watch her son and I would watch my son. And she would always stand there very relaxed. And I was always like really stressed out about my son doing well. And he would be winning come, and he would make a turn and he'd be losing. And she was just sitting there very, very relaxed, not knowing, mm. not saying anything. And, and I always used to say to myself, you know, it's unfair because she has an advantage. She knows what's happening. She knows what's happening with her son. She's not stressed about it. She knows what he's doing right and wrong. And I said, it's unfair. So then I went into tennis and I started being that person. I was the one who understood. So for me, when my son played a match and he lost, I would understand why I could go work on the things. I knew that he would be better than that other kid or he had to work on different things. And I became that relaxed parent mm. that knew what was going on, where most of the other parents are obviously doing their best for their kids. They want their kids to succeed. They, they're trying at all accounts to get the most out of their kids, but they don't know what it is that they're doing. And that's the hard part is that even though they want the best for their kids, they don't really know what it is. And I enjoyed being that parent with my son because I could be relaxed because I knew where I was going with him, what he needed to do and how he was going to get there. And it was a more relaxing feeling being that person. Mm. Thank you for that story. I wouldn't think that actually what you mentioned, I would have thought that the skill is transferable, but that does make sense. It's probably really what we know. So given that you know the sport so well and you can clearly see and through the game, navigate and feel the challenges that your son is going through because you know the game so well and can imagine what's going on in their head during the points your reaction is then probably more relaxed than when you're watching a sport that you don't know as much about. So perhaps the the stressed parents are stressed not from the kids, but maybe from the lack of control that they can't have over the outcome or the advice that they don't know what to give to the kids other than maybe yell at them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they do, like I said, they're trying their best, but they just don't know what it is. So when they're watching their kids, a lot of parents are at the philosophy, you've got to win at all costs. Mm. And But when you're younger, I don't think that's the most important. It's doing the right thing, playing the right way, learning the right things to be able to grow as a player when you get older. And sometimes losing when you're younger is better than winning because you learn how to compete and mm. how to learn and how to learn to win. I give parents credit that they're doing the best for their kids. <clears throat> I just don't know what it is. Yeah. How did both of your boys end up choosing tennis? You mentioned you tried a few different sports. And the older one, I believe he plays for Ivy League school now, correct? He's at Vanderbilt uh, on the tennis team. But he was interesting because he didn't really want to play tennis as a kid growing up. And we did a lot of swimming, a lot of skiing. He played soccer. He did a lot of different sports. Didn't really want to play tennis. But unfortunately for him, he ended up getting child uh, asthma when he was about 11 years old and he couldn't ski anymore and he had a hard time breathing when he was swimming. And he had to give up those two sports and he really, really loved them and, and it was tough for him. And we were looking for things for him to do. And tennis ended up being probably one of the last sports left around the area for him to do. So he only started playing tennis when he was 12. 
but we had a good time with it while we were doing it. My younger one played tennis from when he was very, very young, but he's not competitive as much and he didn't take it as seriously. So he's more of a recreational player than the older one is. So the older one's doing good. He's playing on the tennis team at Vanderbilt and he's having a good time enjoying himself playing tennis. Yeah, that's great. Glad they're both stick to the game. And how are you looking at it now that they're both part of it and playing and coaching and they're enjoying the sport in one way or another? I think it's fantastic. My younger son is actually working for the lady that I had the tennis academy with. He takes care of the younger babies. And then my older son, I actually sometimes volunteer at the school and I assist and volunteer and I go watch him play his matches whenever I can and have the opportunity to. I enjoy being around them and I love the fact that they're doing a sport that I love too, though. So it's all around very good. Yeah. Uh, do they call you and say, Dad, how do you practice this stroke? Or uh, I played this match and, and this didn't go well. Do you have any tips? My older one, I do too. I still help him sometimes when I'm at home. We go out and practice and I help him with different things and I still coach him a bit. My younger one, he knows a lot about the game, but he's teaching the babies, you know, the smaller, younger kids between eight and 11 on the red and yellow ball program. So he's actually very good with fundamentals. He's been taught well from Rosie and that, and he likes it. He's teaching the early development, which is also a very difficult form of the game to teach and very important. And he does a very good job at it. Yes. That's excellent. I would argue that's one of the most important years to get the technique right, yep. right at the eight to 12. And yeah. good job for him. That's terrifying age for me to still teach. I don't think I know very well how to coach those kids. I think you have to have a specific personality and attitude to really get the most out of them. And good job. Yeah. So how's your transition to ATP tour coaches then? What made you make that decision to coach Francis now? But you coached Chillage before. What made you make the decision you're going to make yourself available for the idea? I think after I stopped with Piccolo Blue and moved away from that, I decided that I wanted to get back into tennis. And the reason why I've decided to do it is because my kids are older now. You know, they need less of my time and they don't need me to be around them as much. So I have the ability to travel more and be out on the tour more. And, and to be honest, I missed it a lot. I missed the lifestyle. I, I missed being around tennis and felt like I wanted to get back into it. And the opportunity to coach Chilich came my way through a friend and it was a good opportunity. They called me and asked me if I would do it. And I wasn't thinking about getting back on the tour Really, at that stage, it wasn't thought, but it wasn't something that I was really diving into, and it came my way, and I, so I took the job, and it was interesting to be back, and I enjoyed it. It didn't work out so much with Marin in the sense that our ideas and philosophies of how to approach things were, were maybe not the same. We had a good time together. We left amicably, but I feel like I was better suited on working with a younger player who had more ideas of wanting or needing things to improve, to work on to grow as a player rather than someone who was developed already, who wasn't really wanting to make any changes. It was good to work with Marin to see that side of it. And now working with Francis is much better for me because he's younger and has a lot more to learn and to grow and feel like I have a lot more to offer him. And I've really enjoyed my time with him so far. We've worked on a lot of different things. It's been really fun traveling with him. He's a really good kid. And so far, it's been really a fun time. Yeah, I've read some of your articles that you wrote and It seems like the two of you really found a fit, even a personality fit, which I think is probably one of the most important things for a coach and a player to be able to create that relationship and trust. Because I think that you can work 
more holistically on many different aspects of the game, as you mentioned. He's uh, 22 years old, is that correct? Number 62 in the world now, Francis? He's actually reminded me, he's, his birthday today, he's turning 23 today. Oh my gosh, happy birthday to Francis. Please give him my regards from a stranger, he doesn't know me, but uh, hopefully you guys can have some social distancing cake or a virtual celebration on the court. I'm going to try to find a cake for him today if we can find it in quarantine. Yeah, fantastic. One of the articles I read actually that you posted is why I am trying to make Francis bored. And I love the article you wrote. And it seems like from my view, the way I read it, you're making him train focus, mindfulness. You make him even run without a music. So he gets used to being with his thoughts. Can you tell me more about it? Everybody is different. Marin is a different player to Francis. I'm trying to work on the different things with him. He's a young kid and he has a lot to learn in Obviously, his strengths is a great athlete. He's a good ball striker. He's obviously learned a lot as a player, but things that he lacks is focus and concentration, which I think is something that a lot of the kids have struggled with these days with technology. They're really technology-based. Their attention spans are a lot shorter. They want everything very, very quickly. He has a hard time in focusing for longer periods of time. Mm. And he plays match where he's just unbelievable and then periods where he's not very good at all. So the idea is to try to make him grow more of an old school, kind of like at Armstrong, where you put your bike in front of a white wall and you you cycle for five hours where you have to focus and concentrate on nothing. Trying to give him a little bit more of that, not to that extreme, but trying to get him to do things where there's a longer focusing point, longer than the 15, 20 minutes, trying to do things running, try to get him up to an hour. But at this stage, I have him doing half an hour of running with no music and nothing to do trying to do projects where he can focus longer and for longer periods of time to try to build it because I think it's a learned thing on trying to build that concentration for longer periods of time. And it's been fun. It's been interesting to try to do new things. It's actually been helping him a lot. He's been able to do a lot better in practices, longer periods of practice, do other things like when you hit a tennis ball, you have to hit 50 balls in a row. You can't miss. So you have to focus for 50 shots And these little things are helping him a lot on the focusing on trying to keep his investment into the game for longer periods of time. So obviously his weaknesses that we have to work on, but yes, again, each player has their strengths and weaknesses and are different. Yes. And good job on recognizing it. I think that's the great combination of the coach and player that you find these innovative ideas that you both commit to and agree to practicing. And as you mentioned, work on the little things, building the habits that then once you build them will help you create that consistency and the great game. What else would you categorize? I know in the article, and you also now mentioned the little things that count, what else would fall underneath that for you? The other thing too, and I find, I'm not going to say to generalize it too much, but I feel, I felt that I've seen it a lot in junior tennis, that kids aren't willing to fight hard enough. They're willing to quit too early. And Francis has that sometimes when things aren't going well with him to kind of give up a little bit. And we're working really hard on him trying to focus through and and work the longer periods of time, but also try to fight harder when things aren't going well, working through adversities, trying to push the body to a level on a fitness side, push the body to a level where he has to break through those barriers of wanting to give up and then not giving up and having to fight harder and longer and trying to make him realize that he can push further and he can try harder and he can fight longer than what he's used to. And, and I'm, I'm wanting him this year 
to not play one match where he doesn't try 100%. That's another for him because the younger generations, I'm generalizing not all of them, but a lot of them need to work harder on fighting through adversities. Mm. And so, you know, like, there's a lot of different things we're working on, footwork still on different shots. But those are the main aspect is the focusing and the commitment side of investment that I'm, I'm really putting a lot of energy on with him. Yeah, and it really seems like you're a great fit. I found another quote from one of the articles you stated, in my senior career, I often came from behind to win because of my belief and the will to win. Can you elaborate more on that? What is your perception looking at your later parts of career and the mindset you have been able to build? I felt that I trained exceptionally hard. Obviously, I didn't know how hard everybody else trained. But for a lazy person as I am, I feel like I did a lot and worked very, very hard. And I felt that with all the effort that I'd put when I went out onto that court, I was going to want to win because I tried so hard to get there that I was going to fight as much as I could. And I also hated to lose. I'm a competitor and I wanted to win, but I also didn't want to not give 100%. And what happened was is were, earlier in my career, I'd give up a couple of times and then I started to work really hard physically and I fought a bunch of times and I started to realize how many times I won matches when I was behind. How many times where I felt like I was in a hole that I couldn't get out of if I just hung in there and just kept my focus because it wasn't all about me a lot of the time. A lot of the time it was about my opponent too and I'm playing against him too and he is going to getting towards the end of the match. How many times is he going to get a little bit stressed? Is he going to get nervous? Is he going to start losing concentration? Is he going to drop his level? And I started to realize that if I could just hang in there and hang in and hang in there, the opportunities of my opponent getting worse or helping me out was a lot. And I won a lot of matches. And it became kind of like a test for me. How many times could I win being down? How much fun was it to win matches? It was a lot more fun, actually, to win matches when you're down, deep down, I remember playing Marty Fish at the Australian Open one year, and I was down 6-1, double break, and I hung in there and ended up winning the match in five sets. And victories like that mean a lot more than sometimes just winning matches. Yes. And I just think that Francis doesn't have that idea yet. He hasn't been able to figure that out yet. And I believe that what makes you a good tennis player is one thing, but those are the things that make you a great tennis player. Winning matches when you're playing well is easy. Winning matches when you're not playing well or when things aren't going your way, that's what makes you a great tennis player. Mm. And if he wants to become a great tennis player, he's going to have to achieve those levels. Otherwise, he'll just be a good tennis player. I love that. You described the differences between the top. I agree that even in my limited experience, obviously, I've never been as good as your Francis. But even in college, when I was able to get to the mindset of consistency, to where you get up, you know you're in pain, but you're able to frame your mindset to tune it out and to get into this performance mindset. So I had a specific mindset. I was able to prime myself for it at some point of my college career. That's when I, no matter how tired I was or no matter how things weren't going well, I was able to perform way more consistently. And I agree the wins, what you mentioned, when things are going easy, you get up, everything moves well, you have a timing. Those are really fun matches, but they're very easy wins. I always remember the ones that I struggled with. Yeah. Blood, sweat, and tears, and you just couldn't feel the rhythm, and you somehow thought through and figured out how to overcome that whatever tiredness or negative mindset to prime yourself 
to win at the end. I think those are the ones I remember the most as well. Of course, yeah, definitely. I mean, they make it more worthwhile. All the effort and track practice that you put in makes it more worthwhile. Yeah. Anything else you want to share exploring the athletic mindset, lessons you have learned through tennis that you apply in your everyday life or business? What else would you like to highlight? Think that whatever you do in life, if you can commit yourself and put any your energies behind it and not give up, everyone's going to go through adversities. Everyone's going to struggle at various periods of their life and the periods of their career. If you can keep focused and committed through it and run its course, what they say, practice doesn't make you perfect, but it'll certainly help. And I think if you can stay with it as long as you can, it may not guarantee success, but it'll certainly help you get to where you want to get to in the end. Yeah, thank you. It sounds like trust the practice and do the hard work and commit and the results will eventually take you yep. to where you want to be. Well. You can't guarantee it, but it'll certainly give you the possibilities of getting to where you want to be. So speaking about that and tying it into COVID-19 COVID impact, I know you personally got impacted by COVID. Can you tell a little bit more of how it's changing your practice now, even with Francis? What do you see ahead for the 2021 for tennis players and coaches like you? Yeah. Last year, we had tournaments throughout the year. We were very lucky. We were one of the luckier businesses that were still able to have a job where he was able to travel and play tournaments and make money. But things were different. We had bubbles at the US Open. We had a bubble at the French Open, restrictions staying in the hotel. I just think you have to adjust to your surroundings. You have to realize that there's less opportunities to go out around town, less opportunities to go out to dinners. You're going to have to be more aware of where you are and what you're doing. But they're very lucky. We're in Australia right now. We have to quarantine for two weeks. They get five hours of practice a day, which is a burden for a lot of the players. And a lot of them are complaining about it. But on the other hand, they should be lucky because they have a job. They can get to play at the Australian Open this year. They can get to make a lot of money and they get to work. Sometimes you have to make sacrifices to forget what you ultimately want in the end. And in the end, we'll have the Australian Open in a week and a half's time and they will be able to play tennis, do their job, make money and do what they want to do. And they're very fortunate. Instead of complaining about it, try to get the most out of your five hours of practice. Do whatever you can from your gym and your workouts. Everyone's under the same parameters. Some, unfortunately, are in a hard lockdown and can't practice, which is a bummer for them. But everyone else has the same thing. So who's going to make the most of it? Who's going to get the most out of their time? And who's going to come out at the end of the quarantine and be better off for it and have more success at the Open next week? And that's the key. Yeah, I love that. Sounds like work on what you can influence, focus on your practice and what's in your control and make the best out of it. It's like when you're playing tennis and you're complaining that you have sun <laughs> and you can't serve because you have the sun. Yes. I mean, you have to realize that. You have to realize that when your opponent goes on the other side, he has the same problem. So if you have the same problems that your opponent has, it's a matter of who can manage through the problems better, who can succeed, who can do a better job around it. So let's see who can succeed best out of the negatives that we have at the moment. I agree. So I'm going to try to build in back the coaching and the control and the teamwork that we talked about earlier. I would argue people stating tennis players are very self-centered, very selfish. I would argue, especially being a coach, you have to be in a mindset to wanting to help others and improve. And that doesn't go without a teamwork. I think teamwork is the center of being a great coach and wanting to give something back to that person to help them grow and improve. 
any other view on that reflection of self-centeredness versus the noble act of coaching and actually helping someone maximize their own abilities and the human experience being, a, in your instance, helping Francis being a best version of himself he can be on the tennis court and of the tennis court. The difficulty behind being a tennis coach is kind of weird in a way because realistically, I've been brought in to be his boss to tell him what to do, but yet he's my boss. He pays me, yet I'm supposed to be his boss. And that's the difficulties of working around that trust between each other, that I'm able to tell him what to do and him do it and trust me for it. And that's why he's brought me in is to try to trust me. And you have to work around that trust between the two of you. If a tennis player doesn't respect their coach, it's a disaster. And what I've done to be able for him to trust me that when I do tell him things, he believes what I say and trusts what I say. And when you get onto that level of where you do get along that well and whatever I say, he trusts and believes me and whatever he says, I listen to and trust him and believe him, you can build a good camaraderie and a good teamwork around it. And it's very, very important to have that because you can only have success when everybody works together as a team. And uh, we have Zach Everton with us too. He has a physio and a, a guy back home, but Zach and I travel together and we work well together and we feed off each other and it's important. We tell him things and he's very open to listen and to learn. And if he has some issues which he hasn't really had, we discuss it. And it's the only way to create a good teamwork and for him to get better is to have that bond between it. If you don't have that, it becomes very, very difficult. I love that. And I love that you mentioned trust. It's funny. I was just this weekend recording a podcast with my coach and we talked about trust and the importance of trust. Any tips? How do you work to create trust? Because I think there might be a certain aspect of creating the trust jointly that needs to take place. It may be different for different people. Is there anything you would want to share how you navigate it or any tips you would want to give to other coaches that perhaps are starting and want to take that as an advice and first step? I think it does vary between things as well too, though. But I do believe that if you have something that you have to say, you have to have a reason behind why you say it. If you're going to tell somebody that they need to change their grip on their forehand, you need to explain to them in a very open-minded way that they understand and they can trust you on it that you're making the right decision. You can't just tell somebody to do something without explaining it or making them understand why they're doing it is what they're doing. And I think the trust is built by what you say being explained in the right way, having value behind what it's saying and seeing the benefits of it instead of just saying things for the sake of saying things. I love that. I agree. Having a good explanation and really understanding the why it is what helps people understand the movement and the theory and the technique behind it. And it helps them make it stick in the brain. Yeah. All right. Perhaps last question. Is there anything you'd like to get out to the world, Wayne? Anything we should be doing more of or less of as we look towards 2021? Oh, that's a very open-ended question, that one, Clara. There's many things, but I think at this particular stage, I think everybody's got to do the best under the pandemic where we are today, the best to try to get through this as best we can. There's been a lot in the US. There's been a lot of, I don't know, issues over the last years with everything going on, and there's a lot of diversity and dividedness between everybody, and I just hope that over time we can build 
again, also the trust and the friendship back and kind of get back to a normal life right now. Things have been up in the air the last year and hopefully things will mellow out and we can get through this pandemic and get back to a normal life and people will love each other again or respect each other again and everyone can get along a little bit better than they have been over this last year and a bit. Uh, I hope the same. I'll see what's going to happen here within the next few months and how the vaccine is going. Yeah. I think this lockdown and the stress of the COVID is to some degree, that's my hypothesis, is impacting our ability to think clearly. And we may not even know it. It can be in a subconscious level, but I do think it's impacting our freedom to some degree. And when that is impacted, some people handle it better than others. And yeah. It impacts our emotions, then the whole body and our actions. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Hopefully, we're able to figure a way out. Anything else you would want to share, Wayne, before we end? No, no, I thank you. It's been fun. It's been nice talking to you. It's been fantastic. Thank you for sharing all your wisdom and knowledge and experience. I appreciate your time. Good luck at the Australian Open. And thank you. I'm cheering for both of you. Happy birthday to Francis. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. All right. We'll keep in touch, Wayne. All right. We'll talk soon, Claire. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you.